Thank you for listening to Devoted. We meet every week on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. at Calvary Chapel, East Anaheim. summertime too we want to try to keep things maybe not so heavy so because everybody's you know kind of enjoying the summer and enjoying the time out there but uh but i'm going to ask you to participate tonight so that nobody falls asleep first and foremost but but it's important i think for us to exercise our spiritual muscle that way to be able to share to be able to talk um, it's not going to be anything difficult. I'm not going to ask you any deep theological stuff that you're going to either feel embarrassed there or not want to raise your hand. But I am going to ask you some some questions and things that will uh, hopefully have you participate as we go through this evening. So but let me just start out by asking you a few questions because these are lead-in, the segue to my talk today. And, uh, and my talk, by the way, is uh, called Encourage One Another. In Hebrews chapter 10. We'll look at that in a minute. The questions are this. <coughs> Who besides me believes that we are in a dark time in our world? Show of hands. Yes. Pretty universal. Who believes that there's enough signs to say that Jesus is going to come back anytime? Yeah? Let me ask one more question along that line. Who believes that Jesus will come back during your lifetime? Sure. A little bit more hesitant. Could. Not will, but could. Could. But half the amount of hands. Maybe some of you were going to put it up and didn't really, they don't know. We don't know. And that's the answer. Could. Will he? It's up to him. What we do know is that we'll see the seasons, the signs, the epics, but we don't know the date and the time. That's only known by the Father. But if you knew he was coming back tomorrow at noon, what would you do different between now and then? That's what I want you to think about. Because as we read through Scripture, keep in mind that most of the first century Palestinians that received this message, Gentile or Jew, thought he was coming back during their lifetime. And they were always prepared for it. We, as a church, are sleeping. And we need to wake up. Because we do believe he's coming. We just don't think he's coming right now. Or maybe we hope he's not coming right now because we want to get some things done. But he could come at any moment. I taught a shorter version of this at the men's study, and when I asked who believes he's coming back now, somebody quickly shouted out, and that's the group that they are, I hope soon so we can get out of here. Well, that was not the best message a teacher wants to hear, but anyhow, it was funny, and it worked. But the point is that we don't know, and that we have to always be ready. We see parts in scripture that tell us that we should be ready at all times. We need to live like he's coming back any moment. Not like he's coming back in 10 years or when you're 80 or, or, or you know years and years from now but any time now because the stage is certainly set. As I mentioned we're going to talk about encouraging and encourage one another. And um, 
before we read these verses, I want to read a definition of what the word encouragement means. It says, the act of inspiring others with renewed courage, spirit, or hope. And William Barclay writes this about encouragement. He says, one of the highest human duties is the duty of encouragement. It is easy to laugh at a man's ideas. It's easy to pour cold water on their enthusiasm. It is easy to discourage others. The world is full of discouragers. We have a Christian duty to encourage one another. Many a time a word of praise or of thanks or of appreciation or a cheer has kept a man on his feet. Blessed is the man who speaks such a word. Open up your, your Bibles, your iPads, your phones, whatever devices you might have with you, and let's look at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. The writer of Hebrews says this, he says, Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart uh, uh, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, which is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray. Father, as we just dig into your word today, will you just open up our ears and our hearts and let the Holy Spirit just speak to us where we're at today. Father, that we may learn and grow, that we might be able to search the scripture diligently and see these areas of encouragement today and how important it is to one another. But I thank you for these men and women that are here. I ask a blessing over them and those that couldn't come or those that are traveling, that you just bless them. Be with us tonight, we pray, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. First, as I share every time that I'm with you guys, is that I don't like to go right into a text until we have an idea of the context in which it's written. I think that's very important and fundamental to not only our studying, but teaching. We can take any part of scripture, and sometimes a lot of teachers and preachers will do that, and they'll build topics on it. I don't mind doing that, but you're, you're leaving yourself open to a lot of room of things that could be something less than contextually or what the context is actually trying to say. So in this, I want to make sure that we have a little bit of background going forward and see how we got to Hebrews chapter 10. Well, first of all, the book of Hebrews is an interesting book. It's a difficult one, both theologically and scholastically. If you're trying to study the book of Hebrews, there is a little bit more to it than just reading the verses and trying to figure out, well, what is this actually saying? Some parts of the New Testament are easier than others, same with the Old, but this one is a lot more difficult, maybe the most difficult in all the New Testament. And the reason that it's both literally and theologically difficult is because the writer of Hebrews assumes that his audience understands what he's saying without defining or explaining. Let me clarify that a little bit more. This letter was a letter written to Jews that had converted to Christianity. Okay? Not to Gentiles. Jews that had converted to Christianity. And so with that, the writer assumes that they know their faith and knows their tradition, knows not only their culture, but knows their religion. And so when the writer writes some of the things that he does throughout this letter, he doesn't define it or doesn't explain it. He just moves on. Now, I did this with an older group a couple of days ago. You probably will understand, but, but maybe some of you might miss this. But it would be if we were writing a letter or we were writing a blog or we were uh, writing a book, and we used something that was more descript of the area we're in. 
you know, for example, I might say, oh, I took a plane ride from here to San Francisco, and it was a real e-ticket. Well, a lot of you may not know what an e-ticket is, but being here in Disneyland and Anaheim, you might get it. I saw a couple of heads shake. Yeah, okay, great. You know, that's, that is one of those uh, real nice rides. Now, Disneyland, you pay one price, you get in, you can ride everything. But back in the day, you had ticket books. And those ticket books were A, B, C, D, and E. The E were the really good rides, you know, the Matterhorn Mountain. The A's were the stuff that, well, you kind of threw away. You'd get on the little carriage ride and go down Main Street. But I'm using that just as an example because most of us in Anaheim would know that. But I doubt very seriously people reading that in the Ukraine would understand what we were talking about. And that's exactly what we see here in the book of Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews says certain things that as Gentiles, unless we have a good idea of the Levitical laws, or we've spent time in the book of Leviticus, or when we're reading through this, reference Leviticus, we might miss a lot of it. Now, you probably noticed that I said the writer of Hebrews. Uh, a lot of theologians, a lot of scholars give credit to Paul for writing this as he did most of the New Testament. But there's some difficulties there. This is the only one of Paul's letters where he didn't give any salutations. He didn't say, I, Paul, writing to the church of God in Corinth. He doesn't end it. He doesn't talk the same language he does in his other New Testament writings. This is a real polished Greek. This is something that we see from a translator standpoint uh, actually is translated from the Septuagint, which is more the Greek writing than the Hebrew writing. There's a lot of things here that are inconsistent with Paul's writing. And so it's led many scholars to think, you know, this has got to be somebody different, somebody more refined, maybe like an Apollos, who had such a command of the Greek and a powerful speaker. Maybe it was him. Maybe it was Barnabas. Maybe it was Silas. Maybe it was Luke. Maybe it was somebody uh, other than Paul. Probably one of the, I, I think, more um, suggestions as of late has been it's a consortium of Jewish converts, leadership of the Jewish converts. And they got together and constructed this letter. Uh, could very well be. We don't know. Here's the important part. We know that it's Holy Spirit, uh, the Holy Spirit is behind it, that he has inspired it. And, and what's probably more important than who wrote it is, what did it say? So we can, you know, argue from a scholastic standpoint uh, who wrote it, but I don't think that's the important part here. The important part is, what does it say? And that will speak volumes to where we're going today. As we dig through Hebrews, um, we're going to see some, well, through these verses, we're going to see some things that, that are similar to parts of the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, again, as you go through Hebrews, so much of it points back and even quotes the Old Testament. So it's, it's worth understanding that it might serve you well if you want to learn this letter better to spend some time in the book of Leviticus and to at least, as you're going through this or referencing something in Hebrews, just take a look at the verses that it points back to so that you can get the entire picture. So it's written to these these Jewish converts who have now decided to follow Christ. Now, I want you to put your Jewish sandals on and take it back 2,000 years ago. What was the religion of the day? Judaism. What did they know for centuries? Judaism. Now, all of a sudden, this Messiah who this group of people said is God, comes along, and some of these Jews break from their century-old religion and tradition. But it's not just that. They're breaking from their family. They're breaking from their community. They are breaking from everything they've known and grown up with. They're following Christ but they're moving away from their 
everybody else in the community essentially is. You take a look at that. We don't think about that too often. We go, wow, 3,000 were saved on the day of Pentecost. That's great. And another 3,000 here. Yeah, but there's still a half a million Jews in this one area. So what do you think happens to these people that break away? They are ostracized from their community. Their family turns away from them, closes the door on them. They may lose their position in the community. They may lose their possessions that they've owned. They may lose just about everything that they know in life to follow this Jesus. Nobody made the right decision. This letter then goes on to say two things. A warning for you turning back and an encouragement for you going forward. It's almost as simple as that. These Jewish converts weren't just reading a letter for the sake of growing. These Jewish converts were now experiencing persecution. So once all the enthusiasm, the motivation wore off, now all that was surrounding them was persecution for their decision. And they were starting to retreat. They were starting to look back to Judaism and say, that's familiar to us. We're going back. Or this is too hard over here. We've got to either find an easier way to go back. Now, that's a tough message to hear, but nonetheless, the writer or writers of Hebrews have been hearing it, and now they're encouraged to put a letter together that says, wait a minute. This letter then goes through and explains the superiority of Christ over the angels. Superiority of Christ over Moses. The superiority of Christ over the Aaronic uh, priesthood. The superiority of Christ over the laws of atonement. These are all parts that the Jewish, by culture and tradition, held on tightly to and said, no, the angels are the ones that carried the Torah to us. No, Moses is the bringer of the law. No, the priests, uh, the only way for us to, to, to be resolved of our sins, absolved of our sins, is, is to have the priest intervene on our behalf, to, to kill the spotless lamb. And the sins of atonement, or the laws of atonement, I know I can, I can be forgiven and be cleansed now. There's a place to go. None of that exists anymore. Christ came, and Christ covered all of that. We'll see that as we dig a little bit more into Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. But the, but the Hebrews, the Jews, the, they've done this before. We've seen this picture play out before where when hit with persecution uh, or hardship, they've retreated. We go back to Numbers chapter 11, verse 5, and we see where Moses had taken and led uh, the Hebrews out of the bondage, the oppression of the Egyptians into the desert. And although there was a lot of excitement and they saw God at work, it wasn't long afterwards where they're kind of mumbling and grumbling and saying, enough with this manna. At least back in Egypt, we know they were giving us free fish and cucumbers and melons and garlic and onions and leeks. But they were desiring that. They were looking back and thinking about the good old days. Remember when we had all of that? Remember the good old days? If we want to be honest, sometimes we're like that. When we're confronted with things that aren't going our way, or a real hardship of some sort, remember when it used to be like this? And the older you get, the more idealistic yesterday looks like to you. You might even think of it now. Boy, when I was a kid at home, that was so much easier. I wish I had grown a bit. But that's what we see here. And so the writer of Hebrews puts this together and says, there is a lot more with Christ in your life than you have to lose with Judaism. 
following Christ, there's so much to gain. Continue with your walk. Don't waver. Don't lose hope. That's easier said than done. Don't lose hope. Yeah, but all this persecution, you know, can't can't you see? This is all this is all pressing against us. This is really difficult, and it's easier back there. And just like we're in this rather dark time in our world today, they were in a dark time then. But lo and behold, like a a sunbeam that just bursting through a cloudy day and just covering a part of the land or the ocean, and you just look at it and marvel at it, the very sunbeam came through that persecution in the way of a spiritual salve, a spiritual ointment that said, here's how we get through this. But it takes work. Encourage one another. That sounds almost too simple. And you say, well, you know, give me something more than that. G- give me something that I can encourage one another day after day, as long as there's still today. Over 240 times in the New Testament, we see the New Testament writers say that we are to come alongside one another. We are to honor one another. We are to carry one another's burdens. We are to encourage one another. We're to work with one another. We're to love one another. 240 times, 243 times to be specific, one another throughout the New Testament. That's a strong message for us. And yet, we hear that, and we don't come alongside one another. Now, our role in this as a body is much more important than we each give ourselves credit for or our group credit for. What do I mean by that? If you take a look at the Gospel of John, in chapter 14 and chapter 16, we read about the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit comes alongside as a helper to help us in all kinds of ways. And we see the Holy Spirit popping up in a lot of other parts to help us, to intervene for us in prayer, supplication. So we see that message. The key with that is that when in John 14 and 16 we see that, we see that the Greek root word for helper, is the Holy Spirit, is parakaleo. Oddly enough, but not coincidentally enough, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, and in Hebrews chapter 3, 13, where we're supposed to help one another, encourage one another, it's the same Greek root word, parakaleo, which says to you and I that we have the same, the same duty as the Holy Spirit, to come alongside one another, to carry one another's burdens, to encourage one another, to love one another. It's the same Greek root word. That's a big deal. That means that we are called physically to do what the Holy Spirit is called spiritually to do. We work with one another. We help one another. We build one another. We love one another. That message is, hey, you already have it right here at your fingertips to get through what you're getting through. It's not going to be easy, but just like the ruby red slippers. They've always been on your feet. Click them. Really, that's it? Can't there be something bigger than click them? They're right here already. You are my solution to the persecution I may be going through. I am the solution for yours. We are the solution for each other to help us do that. We move in herds. What happens if we don't move in herds? If we don't move in herds, then the enemy is there standing around the corner waiting for us because he loves to separate the herd. He loves to get the sick, the young, the old away from the rest of us. Is that important? You bet it is. We're going to take a look at a couple of places right now in Scripture so that we know 
what I think it explain a little bit more what we're talking about. Acts chapter 2, if you would, go there. And I'm going to ask somebody to read that for me, if you would. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. That's a complete sharing of your time, talent, and your treasure. That's coming together as a family. That's not about just what takes place on Sunday or Tuesday or Wednesday. It's what's taking place every day of the week. That they were taking their meals together. That they were sharing with whoever was in need that they were listening to the teachings of the disciples, that they were praising God together. That's unity. That's a family. That's what families do. Let's take a look at another part of Scripture, if you would. Uh, you can, with me, take a look at Matthew chapter 18, verse 20. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst. We've heard that many a times. When we are gathering together, we know that Jesus is in the middle of that with us. The Holy Spirit encircles that time and is with us and joins with us. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Let's take a look at what the wisest man to walk the earth said in verses 9 through 12. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up the, his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. Satan's strategy is to separate me from you, you from me, you from us, and to isolate you. And that's why the last couple of years has been very difficult on the body of Christ. Because it's given people not only a legitimate reason to be away, but for some it's built a habit now of being away. And that has made it difficult to be together as because 240 sometimes we're told that we are to come alongside one another. How can you do that if you're isolated by yourself? Now we can do that if you pick up the cell phone and call, you text, you email, but it's given a lot of people, um, let's just call a, 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 a habit or freedom to say, well, you know, there's a reason that I'm here by myself now and it's okay. I'll watch this on TV. I won't respond. We need communication with one another. There's a reason that God created Eve in the Garden of Eden as a helpmate to come alongside Adam. He's looking around and seeing all these animals turn up and says, how about me? But we see that throughout Scripture. God has ordained relationships. He's ordained friendships. And for us to come together is what the Old and New Testament tells us we build strength. That's where the herd mentality comes in. That's Jurassic Park. We move, they move in herds. We move in herds. That's how we stay safe. That's how we protect one another. So when you haven't seen somebody that comes to this group in a few weeks, you should call them. And you should say, hey, Josh, what's going on? You okay? Or you should send a text. Or you should just say, hey, I'm going to stop by and we're going to have some coffee. 
stay in your backyard and we're going to have plenty of room, so don't worry about it, but I'm coming over. We don't do that as much as we should, as much as we need to. But we need to understand the New Testament calls us to do that, and we are called like the Holy Spirit physically to come alongside one another. Let's uh, look back at uh, Hebrews chapter 10 again. Let's throw out one other thing before we dig a little bit deeper into verse 24. But let's look at verse 25, and then I'm going to skip over to Hebrews uh, 3.13. Verse 25 says, Not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as we see the day drawing nearer. What day is that? day of Christ's return. As we see his day, that day drawing nearer, we're to be closer, not further away. Closer. Now, the writer of Hebrews doesn't just say it there. In chapter 3, verse 13, he says, but encourage one another day after day, as long as they're still today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Today. In my Bible, it's got today italicized. Today. I came across this poem years ago, and I want to read it to you. It's called Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow. But it speaks to this verse here, and it says, There are two days in every week in which we shouldn't worry. Two days in which we should keep free from fear and apprehension. One of those days is yesterday, with its mistakes and its cares, its faults and its blunders, its aches and its pains. Yesterday is past forever beyond our control. All the money in the world can't bring back yesterday. We can't undo a single word we said. We can't erase a single act we performed. Yesterday is gone. The other day that we shouldn't worry about is tomorrow. Tomorrow with its possible adversities, its large burdens, its large promises, and potentially poor performances, tomorrow is also beyond our control. Tomorrow the sun will rise, either in splendor or behind a mask of clouds, but it will rise. And until it does, we have no stake in tomorrow, for it is yet unborn. That leaves one day, today. Any man or woman can fight the battle of one day. It's only when you and I have those two burdens of yesterday and today that we start to break down. It is not the experience of today that drives people crazy. It's the remorse or bitterness of yesterday and the dread of what ha might happen tomorrow. Yesterday never saw today. Today will never see tomorrow. So therefore, live out one day at a time. All you have is today. We don't even have the next moment promised, but we are living in today. We're not living in yesterday. The good old days, they're gone. The things that you did that worked, the victories, they're gone. Even the failures, they're gone. But we have today. I can't tell you how many times I've come across other believers that have said, you know, I wish I would have talked to this person to maybe stop it. We have today. There's never going to be a better opportunity than today. But we put things off, and the Bible says, no, this happens today because that's all we've got. Encourage one another and encourage them today. All right, well, we'll we're back at Hebrews chapter 10, and I'm going to go through the verses 19 through 25 a little bit more in detail so that we can get, again, a better picture on, on these verses and what the writer has to say to us. It says, in verse 19, since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh. Now remember, up until that time, all the Jews knew, all the Hebrews knew, is that they could not go directly to God. The veil blocked that. It was only the priest that was allowed to go in. They had to go through one of the priests. Not here. They had full access. Because they have full access now, that is an assurance for us. 
that should be reason for us to rejoice. This letter to these converted Jews said, look it, you have access because of what Jesus did on the cross, because of his blood, you have access. Does anybody remember the O.J. Simpson stuff from 1994? Okay. Um, some of you may not know all the details involved in that. I know more details than normal people. And the reason why I do is my brother was the chief spokesman for the LAPD at that time, the commander at that time. He's been retired for 17 years. But um, he was the only one allowed in front of the media for six months from the LAPD. Nobody else was allowed. It was all channeled through him. Well, he was on every TV station, radio, every broadcast. Um, and you could not get an appointment with my brother at that point because everybody wanted to interview him and a piece of him, and they shut off all communication. So about three months into after he was arrested, things were just you know going out, going out, out of control. They're crazy, and all people out on the streets and protests, and some of you may remember that. Um, I called him, and I said, Dave, I'm, I'm going to be out in the valley. I'm coming back, and I'll be coming back during lunchtime. I'm going to come pick you up. We'll go out to lunch. He says, hey, I'd like that. So I drove down from the valley area, and about 1130, I pulled in there to Parker Center Park, and uh, I come into the door of Parker Center, and there are cameras everywhere that line the walkway. Just clicking everywhere. Anybody that moves and is going towards the building, they're clicking just in case. And I walk in and I go up to the front desk. There's two police officers behind the counter there. And I said, I came to uh, meet with uh, Commander David Gascon. And they said, well, sorry, sir, but the commander's not seeing anybody today. And I said, well, I just talked to him earlier. Well, I'm sorry, sir. Commander's not seen anyone. He says, well, you, would you tell him his brother Bob is here? You're his brother? Oh, come on back here. They took me behind the counter. They go, can we get you a Coke or coffee? Here, let us take you up to where he's at. We'll, we'll walk you up there. And they, they took me up there. I had access. I could have never gotten there any other way. You may not have ever been able to walk right through the doors and up to see the commander. I did because... I had the relationship. He was my brother, and I had access. What the writer of Hebrews is telling these Jewish people is that, look at you never had access to God, and you've had access through the Son, direct access. And that had to be some assurance to them. It had to be some joy and something that they needed to be reminded of. In verse 21, it says, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, remember they had to go to a priest. This is their great priest now. Jesus is the great priest. He is the one that you go to directly. Here's where it gets interesting in verse 22. Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. I'm a Jew in the first century. I have to go through an everyday sacrifice of, uh, of an animal to have my sins resolved and to repent. And then once a year on Yom Kippur, uh, Day of Atonement, I would bring a spotless lamb in, and I would then, you know, ceremonially go through the bath, and I would feel healed, and I can walk away. I understand that. I grew up as a Catholic. Some of you probably understand what I'm going to say, or maybe some of you grew up that way as well. But every Saturday we would go into confession. Every Saturday we would go into confession. Every Saturday we would talk to the priest and tell him what our sins were. I had to make up someone I was uh, seven, eight years old, nine years old, but I made up some good ones. And then he would give you some prayers to say, and you walk out and you say them. And then you'd come back the next week. And you constantly felt guilty. writer of Hebrews saying, I make excellent testimony that this Jesus who died on the cross, his blood covers your sins, past, present, and yet to come. 
You don't have to sacrifice. You don't have to do it over and over again. You don't have to walk forward of Pastor Bob every Sunday when he has an altar call. One and done. That was a foreign message to them, and some of them struggled with it. I know I did when I came, became a Christian. At 14 years old, I kept wanting to go, well, where, where's the confessional? And, and I even went back to my Catholic church to go to confession a couple of times because I felt like I needed to be clean, and that was the only way to do that. It's what I knew. Imagine breaking with that. Mine is one of several cases, and understanding that's what happened here. But verse 22 starts out, says, let us. It's the first of three, let us. Let us in verse 22. Verse 23, let us. Verse 24, let us. It doesn't say let me. Let you. It says let us. In three verses, three times, let us. That is us, me and you. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without Wavering, no matter what's in front of us, no matter what persecution happens, without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Jesus is batting a thousand. There isn't one thing he promised that hasn't come to pass. A hundred percent is a hundred percent. He who promised is faithful. Verse 24 says, And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. This is your part. Let me take that verse and break that down a little bit. Let us consider. What does consider mean? Come on. Not going to be wrong, whatever you say. What does it mean? Consider. Think deeply. As simple as that. Come on. The rest of you didn't know that? The writer of Hebrews says, think deeply about what? How to stimulate or how to motivate who? One another to love and good deeds. Oh? Yeah. We know it's not just about what you say, but what you do. What the writer is saying to us is that we need to really stop and think deeply how we can motivate or encourage another person, another person within the body. How do you do it? Well, let me ask you. How do you? So let's start with the first part of it is who do you? Who in your circle of friends or family, your circle of work environment, in here, who are the kind of people we need to encourage? Shout it out. Be more specific. Family. We need to encourage, if you have parents, your parents, when's the last time you actually encouraged your parents? Spouse, if you're married, children, if you have any, Siblings? When's the last time you encouraged a sibling? People that you work with? The last time you encouraged your boss? Oh, no, you're supposed to encourage me. Well, where does it say that in here? Right, now, I'm really going to hit home here, and forgive me for this. When's the last time you encouraged your pastor or leader? audio-visual guy? When's the last time you encouraged people around the church that are helping? You know, I hope that speaks to you, because some of you here have never even thought about it. That's what I wanted you to think about. But we don't think about this stuff. We might think about some people immediately, but I need to encourage somebody who's sick. I need to encourage somebody who's lost their job. I need to encourage somebody who is ill. They have COVID or they've got some other illness and they're really down and so I need to encourage them. But there are more than just the sick, the terminally ill, 
the caregivers that we need to encourage. I think you understand this, but um, church work is difficult work. The people that make this work, not everybody gets paid. And some of them run on a thank you here and a pat on the back. Most of them are doing it to glorify God. But it's still nice to get the pat on the back. And I think it's important for us to consider how. I have talked to so many pastors, and over the years, I try to make it a point to have breakfast and lunch with them on a regular basis. Because nobody calls them to do that. They call other people. And you kind of wait for them to call you instead of the other way around. Now, that's just one group of people. There are a lot. I mentioned it. It could be your neighbors. It could be other friends. Yes? Absolutely. All right, so now we've talked about some of those, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to challenge you to think about people that you might encourage. Now, I don't want you to just say, oh, yeah, I'm going to leave here and think about it. I want you to write them down somewhere. Even right now, write one or two people down, or positions if you have to. Just do, my, do me a favor and yourself a favor, because after tonight, you probably won't think about it unless you write it down. So think about that. All right, now let's move on to the how do we encourage. Now the New Testament is really good about giving us messages on people that were encouragers, on how they encouraged other people, what they did to encourage them, and when they encouraged them. We can do a whole study on that. We don't have time to cover that. But, you know, for example, Barnabas, which his name actually means son of encouragement, encouraged Paul by bringing him into a group of people that didn't trust him. If he's with me, I trust him. And everybody else trusted him because of Barnabas. Okay. We can talk about other examples and other people, but I want to talk about just us. So we talked about some people we might encourage. How do we encourage them? So let's just open the floor and tell me of a couple of names that you wrote. How do you want to reach out to them and encourage them? How do you think we should? And how do you like being encouraged? What's a good way when somebody encourages you? Anyone? I hear crickets. That's all I hear right now. But go. Thank you. What's a good way to encourage people? That's an important word. We're going to talk about that in a second. What's another way to do it? what you're talking about, your time. You're, you're being intentional by taking the time to call them and you're, they're appreciative of that. What's another thing? Yes. I didn't hear the first part. Yeah, sure. Give me something else. Okay. Hey, that may cost you a little bit of money. Time, treasure, talent. Remember those three T's, the literary you know, coaching of, of, of a lot of pastors by helping you remember the T's, right? Time, treasure, talent. You're saying, take them a little something. Take them a little basket of something. Take them a little bouquet of flowers. It may cost you a couple of dollars. You know, a couple of years ago, right when the pandemic started and, and we were just getting used to what this whole idea of coronavirus could do, I ended up getting the bird flu of all things. 
and I was really sick for about eight weeks. And Becky Copany came by the house and left a little vase of flowers. Now, guys don't usually get flowers, but I thought, that is cool. Just her way of reaching out and encouraging it, and the message that said, we're praying for you. You're going to get better. You know what? That was huge. I had another friend that called and said, hey, we're praying for you every night. Can I come over and do anything around the house? Cut the grass? Anything that you might need around the house? You need your car worked on or anything? I'll get it done. You just tell me. That's encouraging. What else? How do we encourage people? Hey, are we all into texts? Can we do texts? Can we send, I've been thinking about you, right? Or, hey, how is it going? I haven't heard from you in a little bit. Or, hey, what's going on with you? Can we go grab some coffee? Time, treasure, Ellen? Can we send him a card? We've got a friend that she has the gift of encouragement. She hears somebody sick. She, I mean, she's got stacks of encouragement cards, get well cards, and she will write stuff down almost every day, it seems like. I think she sends out really seriously at least one card a week. That's kind of her goal to do at least one. When you're sick, when something's going wrong, you can expect you're going to get a card from Joan. It's coming to you. My mom, when she was dying of cancer, who never met our friend Joan, we got four cards from her, and, uh, you know, every, every three weeks she'd get a card go, who is this? <laughs> Bless her heart, they became pen pals. How encouraging for that to happen. So there's a lot of different ways. Again, consider. Let's stimulate our own minds. Consider the people that we need to encourage, and then how do we encourage them? Absolutely. Yeah, that's very encouraging. I mean, there's a lot of people that have lost their way. Look at these Hebrews. Not all of them went back. Some of them did to Judaism. They didn't want to go back to slavery. They didn't want to go back to the oppression that they had of the law. They wanted to go back to what was familiar. And sometimes people lose their way and go, this church stuff is too hard. I didn't have to go through all this pain when I wasn't a believer. It's happened. Find who they are. Encourage them. So let me ask you a question. This time I don't want anybody's participation or your hand to raise. But I want you to think, what kind of an encourager are you? I'd like you to grade yourself. Just like school. A? B? C, D, F. Second part of that question is I'd like to, to ask the person that's closest to you if they agree with your rating, with your grade. I feel like I'm an A. Really? Let me ask my wife. So I want you to think about that. One of the fundamental parts of encouragement. It's something Joe said quite, um, uh, I, I think, appropriate to what we were talking about, and maybe not coincidental, because I just believe whenever that coincidence happens, it's the Holy Spirit in the middle of it. But one of the things that I learned a long time ago in my Christian walk is if you're going to encourage somebody, you need to do it right. You need to do it in a way that is more than flattery. Not just, oh, wow, I like the way you got your hair done today. Or, hey, that's a great shirt you got on. That's not encouragement. When we talk about encouragement, there's two words that come to mind for me, and it's something that I've implemented in my company for years and years and part of my sales training. One is appreciation, the other is affirmation. 
the two are vastly different. Appreciation is really the quality of a circumstance. It is temporary, but it is something that you are giving to another person that you may not give again. Thank you for helping me set up the chairs today. Thank you for helping me set up the audiovisual and getting me mic'd up. Thank you for bringing my groceries today. Thank you for going to pick up my prescription at the doctor's where I was, or at the pharmacy. I, I just couldn't do it. I was sick. It's important. It's a quality thank you, but it's for a circumstance as opposed to the quality of somebody's character. That's affirmation. That's what Joe alluded to. Joe, thank you for loving this group as much as you do. Not for teaching a good Bible study today. Because it may not be a good one next week. Truth. Somebody comes up and tells me, thank you, this is really good. And then that same person doesn't tell me the next week. I think it's hell. Rata. For them. But if they come up and they say, thank you for loving our class enough to be here when we needed you. Thank you for your diligence. Thank you for the example that you are as a man of God. Thank you that you love my family the way you love my family. Those are all affirmation as opposed to appreciation. They're different. They're both important. But one speaks to the circumstance. The other one speaks to the heart. One is skin deep. The other one is to the bone. Understand the difference between the two because there is a huge difference for the person receiving. Then verse 25 says, not forsaking our own assembling together, which is the habit of some. Now we talked about this verse a couple of sessions ago when I had the ability to teach. Not forsaking our own assembling together. Interesting word assembly because it's much richer in the Greek. We say assembling together, gathering together. Well, again, a gathering together speaks to people coming together, not isolation. You have to come together to assemble. But this Greek word is episunagoge. Two Greek words, epi, above or beyond. Synagoge is synagogue. Above and beyond just meeting at synagogue is what the meaning says. Don't forsake the assembling together as the habit of some. In other words, don't just come on Sunday. That's a good thing. Don't just come today. That's a good thing. Or Wednesday. Live life together. Above and beyond the synagogue time, live life together. Especially as you see the day drawing nearer. There's only one other place in the New Testament where episunagoge is used, and that's in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. And that thing is coming together as we see the day drawing near. That's when Christ is coming back for his church. That is the time that it speaks of. That's the time that it speaks of here. Just like in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13. Today, as we see the day drawing near, we need to come together. And to be able to be together, work together, above and beyond, live together. What's the opposite of encouragement? Discouragement. And it's so easy to do that. We're really good at that. Because if we can discourage other people, maybe we can get ahead. When people are sarcastic, the idea is to lower them so that I can raise myself. Think about in terms of why you don't encourage people. Hey, I can't encourage myself. I can't do that. I need somebody to encourage me. doesn't matter if you need it or not. You encourage somebody else, and I promise you the Holy Spirit's going to lift your spirit. I promise you. I came across this other poem here that I got years ago from an anonymous author. And I'm going to close with that, and I think it really blends in nicely to what we've studied tonight. It's called, What Kind of a Worker Are You? 
Because I saw them tearing a building down, a gang of men in a busy town. With a ho-heave-ho and a lusty yell, they swang a beam and the side wall fell. I asked the foreman, are these men skilled, the men you'd hire if you had to build? He gave me a laugh and said, no, indeed. Common labor is all I need. Because I can tear down in a day or two what it takes skilled men years to do. I asked myself as I walked away, which of these roles have I tried to play? Am I a skilled worker who walks with care, looking to encourage both here and out there? Or am I a worker who walks the town, content with the labor of tearing people down? Something to think about. Are you an encourager? How do you grade yourself? Nothing like today to start. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time and for these people. Lord, I just pray that you bless each and every one as we leave here. And Lord, you have told us over and over through your writers in the New Testament that we are to come alongside one another, to encourage one another, to care for one another, to honor one another, to love one another. There is a reason why you've continued to put that throughout the New Testament. Lord, help us to just soak that in so that we can understand that our role is not unlike the Holy Spirit's role to come alongside one another and to uplift the burden of another, to do it unselfishly, to do it without any reciprocation involved, just to do it out of love because you first loved us. So we thank you for this time. I thank you for each and every one here, and I thank you for how this class, this group is so encouraging to me and to Joe in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.